When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Uh, before we get into this interview, I just wanted to take a second and say thank you very much for your support. Uh, recently found out due to some statistics that have uh, recently been published that I'm actually in the top 8% of all podcasts uh, based on the level of support, the ratings, the reviews, all of those things that can only come from you and your support. So thank you listeners for that. Uh, keep it up. Keep sharing the show with people you think are going to benefit from these guests, which probably most people you know will benefit from these guests. I also want to take a second to uh, say thank you to my friends over at Interview Connections. They're one of the people who provide me with great guests for this show. A lot of them are some of your favorites, uh, just based on statistics that, that you'd like to listen to. Uh, and they offer uh, a free Facebook uh, group guest expert profit lab where they give out free training on how to monetize your microphone as a guest expert on podcasts. If you want to find out more about them and what they do, visit interviewconnections.com. They are the ones that provided me with today's guest, Miss Susan Hamilton Meyer. Now, Susan is uh, she's going to have a little bit of a different take than some of my guests. But what she does is she brings together analysis and creativity to help her clients build better brands. We all want better brands. We all want more people buying into what we do. And she is a lady that can help you do that. So without further ado, here is Susan Hamilton Meyer. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden and Command podcast. Today's guest is Susan Hamilton Meyer. Susan, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Earl. I really appreciate it. Uh, Susan is a brand strategist and visual artist. She's founder of Susan Meyer Studio. In her consulting practice, she helps marketing and sales teams across the healthcare ecosystem grow their brands and envision innovative ways to electrify their work. Drawing on her work as an artist, she brings a fresh creative perspective to the strategies. I had her first job with Boston Consulting Group. Susan began her career uh, and became fascinated by the deep emotional connections that brands can build with consumers. She went on to work for boutique branding agencies, focusing on customer research, product innovation, and packaging design. And she's had the privilege to work with some of the world's leading corporations, including Unilever, uh, PepsiCo, Kellogg's, Mars, Samsung, Genentech, and Novartis. She holds a uh, 
BA in Art History from Dartmouth, and an MBA from Harvard. She enjoys painting, sculpting, jewelry, and children. Susan, that is a fantastic bio. Again, thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I'll start you off where I start everybody off. When you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you? So, you know, for me, what that calls to mind is, you know, the burden of leading people, which command takes me to this sense of leadership. And and that can be anything from business to uh, parenting and uh, anything you do in the community, in the military, all of those things involve leadership and command. And the burden of doing that is that you are really responsible to them. Whoever it is that you're in charge of, really you're serving them. And so the burden is to do that in a way that's mindful, that's meaningful, that serves them well. So you may come in with a vision um, for what you think is right, um, but always to be listening for that feedback of, you know, is it on track? Is it working? Does it make sense? Is it bringing out the very best in the people that work for you um, and whom you're trying to serve? You know, I, I like that. And, and, you know, people listen to the bio, uh, you know, they, they heard a lot about branding and, and strategy. And, and the one thing I like, especially looking at some of the work that, that you've done, is, you know, there is a major crossover between branding strategy and leadership strategy, uh, especially when it comes to the, the need to, to know the people you're serving. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think there's overlap in a number of ways. I think the brands that I work with, they're, one of their major goals is to become leaders in their industry. So that's one form of leadership. So individuals, humans can be leaders, but also companies and brands can be leaders. And that can be leadership in terms of the obvious you know, sales growth or market share. But as we're seeing right now, it can also be leadership in terms of how you show up in the community and what you stand for and what your values are. Um, so, so that's one, one way that, that leadership um, intersects with brand strategy. And then another way is that, of course, I work with um, a number of leaders, both at high levels, mid-levels, and junior levels in an organization, and each uh, meeting that we have, each workshop that we that we have with the team, I'm sort of facilitating that meeting in a way. I'm providing a leadership role, but really I'm more supporting the leader um, that has hired me in bringing the best out of his or her team. No, I, I like that. Um, so on the topic of branding, what does good branding look like? You know, and have a lot of folks on here who are uh, you know, entrepreneurs in their own right and may be struggling with that question. So, so what does good branding look like to you? I think the first thing that comes to my mind about good branding is consistency. So when you are communicating who you are, which is really what branding is, communicating who you are to the world of folks that not just the folks that you necessarily serve, but any onlookers, all we call them touch points. Anytime that you're touching the outside world, whether that's through your website, your logo, the messaging on the back of your package, 
um, your social media, those are all touch points. And, and so your brand kind of lives in all of those areas, expresses itself in, in words, in pictures, in actions. Right. And, um, so, uh, so those are all the ways that, that, that branding can reach out to the community. Right. Well, you, you kind of um, alluded to it a little bit earlier, but as, as of recording this, we're, we're kind of, uh, uh, we're, we're in mid-June, and we're kind of at the, depending on who you listen to, the tail end of the first wave of, of the coronavirus, or we're at the beginning of the second wave. Oh, and, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of a lot of my listeners have seen, you know, the, the new commercials where organizations have really tried to seize on what you were just talking about with showing their presence in the community by uh, changing their brand or changing their marketing a little bit to give a shout out to healthcare workers, give a shout out to delivery drivers. Um, you know, that that that's pretty smart to, to really kind of seize that opportunity. But how do brands a leverage a crisis like that, but b keep it genuine and not like they're taking advantage of it? If that makes sense. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's a fine line between being opportunistic and trying to take advantage of a crisis, which feels really wrong, um, versus being a an an actor on the stage as we all are of what's happening and not being sort of tone deaf to, to what's going on and, and participating in the community that you're a part of. And again, I go back to that notion that brands are, you know, actors, just as humans or individual leaders are actors, brands themselves have personal relationships with their constituents. And so um, they, uh, you know, they have a role to play when there is a health crisis um, or a community crisis or a political crisis, um, they, you know, sort of need to take a stand and play a role. And, you know, I think a, a, a beautiful example uh, is uh, the Aunt Jemima brand, which today announced that they were going to be redesigning all of their packaging and actually renaming their products. Um, as part of the Black Lives Matter movement um, uh, in recognition of, of their sort of insensitivity to that over the years. And so I think that there are a lot of ways that brands can and, you know, in that case, need to participate in, in what's going on in the world. Yeah, no, uh, that is, uh, I, I just saw that not too long ago myself, and I thought the same thing. I'm like, that's, you know, that's, that's smart. It's, it's something that probably should have been done a while ago. But, you know, now is, is uh, as good a time as any. Um, and I guess that brings me up uh, another question. is like when you're making something, you're taking something as iconic as, say, the Aunt Jemima brand, and you realize what it has meant, how difficult is it to kind of change that look, change the name, and, and keep your place in the market? So, I mean, I think this this particular brand is a, is a great example of, you know, it might be easy to scratch your head and wonder, why has it taken them so long to change this thing, which is sort of obviously out of date and insensitive? And, um, you know, the answer is that in branding, um, you know, one of the things that everybody is going after is that consistency and the notion that you, or the truth that you have built 
a large amount of goodwill and equity in a brand, which is very hard to build. It takes a long time. If anyone's ever tried to launch a brand new brand out of nowhere, they know um, that it takes a long time to kind of reach through the clutter of all the available brands in the universe and have a voice, have a share of voice in the world. And so once you've done that with a brand, um, it's hard to walk away from, and in most cases, not in this one, but in most cases, you don't want to walk away from that. So when I do a, a refresh, for example, um, you know, if I have a client who's already a well-established brand um, and they want to, um, you know, sort of refresh their everything from their messaging to their positioning to their visual, you know, their logo, etc. Um, one of the things you're always careful to do with that is to think about what are those kind of critical elements of the brand that without it, it's not that brand so that you don't walk away from those things as you move forward. And, you know, some brands, you know, as in this example, lose their way and, you know, in their way forward in, in being more conservative about not wanting to walk away from their equity. Um, in most cases, it's not a, you know, a sort of a, a laden, uh, situation like this one. Um, it's more just of that subtle art of keeping what we've got that works and works well and moving it forward as all things do and must um, to reflect, uh, you know, the world as it changes. And um, so you might refresh the colors and change the font on the logo and maybe even change the positioning. You know, maybe you're going to start, you know, surveying. Uh, a younger audience, or maybe you're extending uh, your product into a new market. So you're you're going to now focus on moms um, instead of a general population. You've got a new offering for them, um, and so you're going to expand your messaging or or shift your positioning a little bit. Um, but important not to walk away from what you've already built. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it, I was as you were. Talking about that, I was thinking, uh, you know, I uh, former active duty Marine, and I remember a few years ago there was a discussion, and they've even kind of toyed around with it a little bit, uh, even though they haven't made an official 100% change. But you know, the Marines have had the slogan for a long time, you know, the few, the proud, the Marines. And I remember that conversation and, and kind of the backlash in our community of, you know, why would you change it? It's it's worked so well for so long and it's so iconic but i guess in some ways that can be a danger in and of itself right it's it's sort of the the conundrum of so many things right like how do we move forward while still retaining what's good about the past and it's a, it's a soul searching process and you know branding is a lot and leadership in general right is a lot about self reflection and really digging deep into what are your core values and what do you stand for and what um, you know what do you want to uh, project out into the world um, that's that's useful and meaningful and so yeah those are the hard decisions about how do we you know continue to grow and change and innovate and move forward um, and and what is it important um, what is important from our past that we want to bring with us yeah. so you you mentioned it uh, a little bit ago uh, but t- you know talking about uh, brands aligning themselves with, uh, you know, social causes. Can can a brand afford not to, to have a social cause these days? You know, 
I wouldn't come out and say a brand can't exist without a social cause. I think it has to be genuine. I mean, I think there's actually a real risk of trying to come out, you know, arbitrarily like we need a cause and then go find one. You know, if you look at a brand like Patagonia, which is, you know, famous for sort of being uh, built around its, its, its cause or Tom's shoes, those things happened organically and they're part of the DNA of the company. And, um, and that's why they're responded to so well by the group of people that they, that they serve. I think it's harder for a brand that's been, you know, really focused on its own product and features and, and, and its own target market, um, that doesn't explicitly have a cause to then sort of say, well, actually now we're going to take up the flag for, XYZ. Um, it has to have some connection to what the brand actually does, or else it, there's actually research about this. It actually backfires um, if it doesn't have some genuine connection to what the brand does. So for example, food brands, um, a lot of food brands are working um, to, to get involved in sustainability. Okay, that makes sense for a food brand, right? Or right. a clothing brand even. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And that's, you know, that's what I was saying. Like when, when uh, I first started looking at this uh, and seeing the, the intersectionality with, uh, with branding and, and, and leadership, I mean, you know, these are a lot of the same things that, that I work with leaders on on a routine basis. You know, get to, get to know the people you serve, get to know what, what matters to them and, and, and be authentic and and you know it was it was very eye opening to me because I never really thought about branding this way, but just to see how how closely branding and leadership and, and those understanding uh, components really really line up. And, uh, well, interestingly, you know, I mean, in the same way that brands are leaders, leaders are also brands. So right. often when I work with a, a larger company. Um, one of the kind of sub projects that we work on is this, you know, we call it the CEO brand, you know, the CEO of a large company has a brand that is distinct from related to perhaps, or definitely, but distinct from the brand of the company or its products. And so I think we have to all, for better or for worse, we have to all be aware that we as individuals go out into the world with our own brand. So our, you know, our company has an Instagram page, but we also personally have an Instagram page, right? Just as a, you know, practical example. Um, And so I think for leaders to think about themselves as a brand can be also an interesting and useful exercise. Like what, what do you stand for? Even if you don't think of yourself as selling something, right? Like if you're the leader of an organization and that organization sells something, you too are still a brand. You stand for something within your organization and also externally facing the world. Right. Well, you know, and I think, uh, so for any listeners who, who may have not a hundred percent been tracking on that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but what I heard, uh, you know, kind of recently is is Chick-fil-A is a perfect example of that. Like as a company, Chick-fil-A seems to be doing all the right things. But when they get hit in the media, it's about things that the, the Kathy family are doing with their money, the causes that they're donating to, not necessarily the company itself. 
And those things are, are one and the same. And so if I'm hearing you right, it's, it, the, I think that's what you're talking about is what the Kathy family is doing, even though it's separate, they are so synonymous with Chick-fil-A, the corporation, the brand itself suffers for their decisions, right? Yes, yes. And I think and that example you picked, you know, is a highlights how highly sort of politicized in our day and age, these things can very quickly become. Um, but, you know, it can be even at a, at a less kind of high stakes political level, um, or ideological level, um, just as a, you know, an everyday, less highly charged situation, we all have our own brands and actions, but certainly it quickly escalates into the public view if the, you know, billionaire founder of a large company donates part of his personal fortune to one political party or to one cause, that's going to quickly come into the news and affect the the reputation um, of the company that... Um, that they represent, even though, as you said, it's not the it's not the company itself that's making that action. So the stakes get much higher when there's kind of a highly charged situation involved. Um, but even in a in a sort of a regular situation, we want to know what does that CEO stand for? What you know? What are what are they all about? Like, what are their values? Um, you know, are they community builders? Are they rugged individualists? Are they innovators? Are they uh, you know alignment focused? You know, are they great negotiators? What is their mark? Like, what's their sort of positioning in the world? Um, and, you know, and that's separate from the company that they run. So we, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but let's just say I'm a, I'm a brand new organization, um, I'm a fresh startup, and I'm starting to think about what I want my brand to, to look like, to represent. Um, what, is, what is a good place for, for an uh, organization to start building their brand? Is it a slogan? Is it a logo? Is it a color palette? Is it all of those things? I would say that all of those things are certainly important, but they don't come first. And so, of course, I bring my perspective on this as a strategist, but I truly believe that you need to start with strategy before you can do all of those things, which I call expression. Those are kind of how you go out into the world, but first you have to know what it is that you're doing and why. And so to create your strategy, you need to know, it's not that complicated, but you need to know who you are and who your customers are. And the answers to those things, you know, if you are a startup or you've ever tried tried to run one, um, turns out to be not quite as easy <laughs> to put that down on pay. I've done this exercise for myself with my own company over and over again, and, and this is what I do for a living, and I still find it difficult <laughs> to succinctly put a stake in the ground, put a boundary around it, because you really, when you're running a business, especially a startup, you want to be everything to everyone because you just want to get out there and have people pay you to do what you do. And it's um, it's a real challenge to sort of say, okay, but really what I do are these three things. And I do that for these two target markets. And that is the first exercise to say what you do versus what you don't do. And then to think about, you know, what is it that you do a little bit differently from other people? If you're a house painter, are you a really very neat, high quality 
beautiful, you're going to get a beautiful outcome from this, um, from this job, or are you extremely fast? You know, there, you're going to be, um, you need this thing done overnight where your people, um, so there, you think about what it is that you bring to the table again, genuinely, um, and, and how you're going to position around that. And then you think about, okay, those are my two target markets what do they care about you know what what do they what do they need most or maybe even you just define your target market by what you know you do well um, but really thinking about the intersection of those two things who am I and who are they what do I do well and what do they care about and that helps you kind of come up with a strategy for you know what we call positioning like what is your niche what is your position in the market that's unique that's different that you can kind of nurture and protect and grow so that it doesn't just become you know there's me and three other people doing the same thing and who you know our customers are going to choose based on how much we charge because um, that's a position you never want to be in you never want to be in a price war to the bottom um, so I would say starting with that strategy and what I often help clients do is just create like a little book, like a brand Bible that lays out that those, those things. And I have a series of exercises I take them through to get there. And then once they kind of know who they are in the world and, and who that set of customers are that they're going to be serving and what they care about and what they want. Then you can translate that into, okay, so now what should I say on my website? And what should the colors look like? And, you know, if I'm the speedy painter, maybe I want like a really vibrant color like orange, right? Or, you know, so there's some logic or reason behind why I'm choosing the things I choose as opposed to just sort of randomly going, well, that looks nice. Um, so that it all, again, back to consistency, fits together. Right. No, it, I, I, yeah, I like that, especially that, that kind of that last part there uh, where you kind of we're talking about a little bit of the neuroscience that goes into it, because, uh, you know, one of the things we do here uh, at the Leadership Phalanx is, you know, we talk about leadership, uh, but we also talk about diversity and inclusion and, and the neuroscience behind that. And it's it's amazing what impacts uh, the, the human brain. Uh, you know, like for the for the listeners, you know, there's a study that was done by Harvard that that showed sim- simply showing uh, the color red versus the color blue, you know, elicits warm feelings and and anger uh, in some instances, and blue kind of cool melancholy uh, type of of a response. Same message, same words, different color, completely different. Uh, point of view on how that messaging is received and it is important like you say to to not just well I like purple I'm just going to throw purple there you got to understand why purple is what purple is saying to people right yeah colors are extremely powerful um, and you know even more subtle things like the way the font looks um, can give you know a level of playfulness or a level of credibility 
Um, and and uh, those things are very important to understand, both from a both from as you were explaining the neuroscience perspective, um, which is very real and very strong. Um, but also there's a signaling component of it. So if I work in healthcare where everybody else has kind of greens and blues and I know, well, I may not know, but I subconsciously am seeing that everywhere. And so I probably have a sense that those are the colors that indicate healthcare. I have to make a conscious decision if I want to come in with a color like orange or red about why I'm doing that. Um, and it may be a great decision, but I need to know why I'm doing that because it's going to signal something different. Hmm. So as a, an organization is going through that exercise, um, like let's say a startup right now, what what time frame should they be thinking about their, their branding? You know, I'm thinking like if somebody's starting up right now, it'd be very easy for them to get wrapped up in some of the the widespread social issues and maybe let that influence them, but maybe a year, two, five, ten years down the road, those things are not as, quote, important or they've been taken care of. Uh, and, and that branding maybe needs to be refreshed, right? Yeah. You know, I think when you're leading an organization, not just from a branding perspective, but uh, from every perspective, you're always thinking on three different time planes at the same time. You're thinking, of course, immediate term, there are things that you just need to be looking around at what's happening right now. Um, but then there's the kind of short-term horizon and the long-term horizon. And you need to be juggling all three of those things in your head at the same time with every decision you make, which is why leadership, and one of the reasons, one of the many reasons leadership is difficult, right? Because doing, holding those things together is not easy. It's easy to optimize for one or the other or the other, um, but it's almost impossible to really optimize for all three. But you need to sort of like always be toggling back and forth with like, okay, if I do this now, this is going to be great immediate term, but what does that mean three years from now? What does that mean 10 years from now? So I often take my clients through an exercise where we start with the long-term vision and it, it allows, that allows people to be a little bit more creative and let go of those really pressing, urgent needs, or even the medium term needs can sometimes feel really pressing and urgent. So like, just pick the, you know, ideate the ideal world that you want to see in 10 years. Where do we want to be as a brand? Where do we want to be as an organization? Where do we want to be in terms of growth, in terms of innovation? What do we want to see launched, What, etc.? And then we come back to, okay, so what needs to be true in the next two to three years in order to make that happen. And that seems to be an easier way to think about it because you allow for creativity and innovation and big thinking, and then you dial back to um, practicalities. Yeah, again, the the uh, the similarities are, are great. I mean, that's exactly the same type of exercise that, uh, that we work people through when we're talking about building your, your culture. Same exact thing. So I guess, uh, you know, maybe that's that's my takeaway right now so far. Culture and, and branding are pretty much hand in hand. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. Because your brand is an expression of your culture in the end. 
Yeah, that makes. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Like I said, I never really thought about uh, thought about it that way. But it, you know, having this conversation and, and doing my my prep work, it, it, it is. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a great way to say it. Um, one of the things I like, and I like this term you use, order in the chaos. Um, what what does that mean to you, and 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 how should people be aware of uh, order in the chaos? <laughs> As I sit here in my New York City apartment and look out my window, it seems more relevant than ever. But um, <laughs> that's something that I, I have been thinking about my whole career. It's sort of what I make my, my artwork about. Um, I, I find it to be a really poignant this juxtaposition of we have these things that we control and these things that we don't. And this is the foundation of strategy, by the way, is that you have to make really clear, decisive choices in an environment of incomplete information. That's a leader's job. That's a, that's the strategic job of a leader. And so as a strategist, or for me as a strategy consultant, what I'm helping those folks do is sort through, okay, first of all, identifying what are the things that are actually within our control and what are the things that aren't? And what do those things that aren't in our control look like that we need to be aware of so we can at least kind of carry them in our minds and keep them sort of present as we make decisions? And then how do we find some order, some pattern, some strategy that will guide us through this constantly shifting, not within our control environment. We don't know how our competitor is going to respond when we take an action. We don't know how the market is going to change. Lord knows if we've learned anything over these last few months, we don't know how the whole world is going to change. And so we need to make, and yet we need to make important um, decisions that have trade-offs and risks in that environment. And so that to me is really what strategy is about, is finding that order in the, you know, chaos is the natural state of the world. Nature will revert to entropy. That is the law of the universe, right? And so, and humans and our lives and our constructs, it's still all like the fundamental order of the universe is chaos. And so we are trying to create some order within that. Oh, no, I, I, I like that. I like that a lot because, I mean, it's true. And again, you know, uh, what you're talking about there is what uh, what in the Marines we term the 70% solution. You know, once you get uh, about what you feel like is about 70% of the information, that's probably all you're going to get that's going to remain solid. Everything else is going to be is going to be fluid. If you if you sit back and you wait for the 100% clear picture, it's never going to happen and you're never going to take an action and, and you can't afford. And I would imagine it's the same thing in, in, uh, uh, in, in marketing. You can't afford to not act. You have to be making some type of action and, and adjusting on the fly. So that, that really resonated with me there. It's so true. It's so true. Um, so speaking of being in the middle of, of a pandemic, and we've kind of talked about some of the things that, that organizations are doing uh, as far as uh, marketing responses and even just thinking about their culture, uh, that's going to happen a lot more going forward. We're seeing a lot of discussion about is, is telework now the new norm? Is work-life balance really as, as important as we thought it was, or is it more important? So I guess... My question boils down to this, you know, what's next? What's next for organizations? What ne is next for how 
we market not only to customers, but market to, you know, say applicants to our organizations as well. Let me grab my crystal ball. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If only we all knew what was next. But um, one thing I am actually fairly certain of uh, and very optimistic about is that we're about to enter a time of massive innovation. And so the more fearful way to look at it is we're entering a time of massive change. But I think there's a really optimistic side to that. Um, and I, and I wholeheartedly believe in this that, um, on every level from, you know, future of work, uh, you know, home versus remote versus job share versus whatever, um, on a systemic level, reimagining law enforcement, um, on a cultural level, uh, we're turning everything upside down right now. And what's going to come out of that um, is uh, beautiful creativity, right? Because we have to be creative to get through this. We have to find new solutions. And so people will, because people are creative. People are innovative. And, you know, the old uh, adage that necessity is the mother of invention. Well, we've reached a point on many levels um, at the moment where there is grave necessity, you know, in healthcare, in society. And uh, what we're going to see is human beings rising to that challenge. And so, and I think that business is going to be a big part of that, right? We live in a capitalist society. And so businesses are going to be um, leading leading the charge on many fronts in terms of cultural change, in terms of specific innovations, you know, vaccines, um, uh, digital solutions for remote working, um, reimagining education potentially, um, at least in the short term. Um, so I think that, you know, as many sort of disappointing and frightening things as we've been experiencing and, you know, may potentially continue to experience, I think we're going to see at least as many and, and I believe many more um, really positive silver linings where we're going to have um, a world, you know, if I imagine five years out, our world is going to look very different in a lot of really positive ways. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I like that that approach. And I like the fact that you, you brought up uh, innovation, because one of my previous guests uh, a few episodes back was a gentleman named Chuck Swoboda. Uh, he's the uh, innovator in residence at Marquette University, and, and he's basically made innovation kind of his career. And, and one of the interesting things he said, it ties very nicely into, into what you just said, is that across a lot of sectors, and education being one of them, they, they executed their three to five year tech progression plan in in some cases in as little as a couple of weeks. Like he was talking about the the number of of courses at universities, uh, how much they shot up uh, at the peak of the pandemic. Uh, but these were things that they were talking about. We're going to do in the next three to five years, and they literally executed them over the course of of the spring break. So when students came back, they were able to take these classes online. What is it, uh, from your perspective on, on, on that side of the fence, what is it that drives organizations to prolong that type of plan? You know, it's, it, it tells you a lot about the planning process that, that you can take a three to five year plan and actually execute it in, in as little as two weeks, right? 
I mean, I think it boils down to risk, right? Doing anything new involves risk. Um, innovation requires investment of time, of money, and so there are trade-offs. And when you have a more of a emergency or crisis situation or a shock to the market or a big change, the trade-off changes, right? So what you're risking is still high, your investment is still high, but the imperative is higher than it was before. And so I think that that's why you're seeing um, these shrinking lead times. And I think I think your first question was, you know, why does it take so long? Usually, um, you know, we're naturally risk averse uh, as people and and organizations, and and a lot of organizations have, you know, investors or shareholders to answer to, and so they need to be really mindful um, with how they're investing their resources, and they don't want to launch innovations that fail, and yet. And yet, the nature of innovating is is that you are going to th- launch things that fail or try things that fail because you can't come up with new things without first going through the hundred things that failed before you got to the good one. So it's it's challenging, and I think that's why those those cycle times are slow because they're trying to find um, ways to do it that minimize the risk um, or spread that risk out over time. Okay. No, I mean that makes that makes a lot of sense. It's uh, you know, I mean, we've talked about a couple of brands already that that have kind of hit that, and you know, I think the the one that really sticks out to to me, uh, this kind of a cautionary tale on a lot of fronts was, uh, and and some of my listeners may remember this, but the the whole uh, new Coke fiasco, uh, you know, lead, leading up to that change. You know, that was considered like a slam dunk, but it really blew up in Coke's face, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that was a great example of um, the powerful equity that a brand has, right? And and the specificity of that equity, you know, and especially with a product like Coke where it's as much as they might talk about the proprietary formula, and I guess it does taste a little bit different from other colas, but really it's the brand that they're marketing there much more than the product. And so, and the way that brand makes people feel and what it stands for and um, tweaking it even the tiniest bit. I did a lot of work in the cola space and, mm. and tweaking it just the tiniest bit has enormous risk. I mean, potentially enormous reward because if you can come up with a successful innovation, it's an enormous market. But um, those folks have to be especially very, very, very careful about their brand because they're they have huge awareness, huge equity, huge loyalty, and a very specific positioning that sits in an almost entirely emotional space. Um, that if they ticket just a little to the right or to the left they may be just completely off base yeah no it's um you know one of the best one of the best ways i've heard it explained is uh uh, malcolm gladwell and i think it was his very first ted talk Uh, i'm not sure if you've ever heard his his talk on uh i think it's just titled spaghetti sauce oh no i haven't Oh, it, it is, it is like outstanding. Uh, I'll have to put a link to it in the show notes, but he talks about a lot of these same things that, that you're talking about here. Uh, but, but he makes two very valid points uh, that, that I never really thought about. But one, and I'm interested to hear your take on it, he says, 
One of the worst things you can do is ask people what they want because they don't know. And, and he uses this example. He says, if you surveyed 100 people what they look for in a coffee, you're going to get a rich, dark, hearty roast. He goes, but if you give them a rich, dark, hearty roast, the first thing they're going to do is add milk and sugar. So what they really want is a milky, sugary coffee drink. And I thought, yeah, that's true because, uh, you know, uh, that's what I hear a lot of people say. And the first thing they do is they grab a creamer or they grab a sugar. Very few people want a rich, dark, hearty roast. But the, the research would tell you that's exactly what they want, right? Yes, that's a, that's very funny. Um, yeah. Myself included, I put milk is basically a ve- I mean, coffee is basically a vehicle for milk in my house. But um, <laughs> but but the bigger question that you're raising is, you know, how do you actually find out uh, what people want when it's not as simple as just asking them? And you know, I've done hundreds and hundreds of hours of con- well. E- prior to my current business of consumer research, so really traditional kind of focus groups or one-on-one interviews with consumers, asking them about, largely about food at that time in my career. And there, you know, there are very specific methods that you need to use to get around just if you come head on with the question of like, what do you like or what do you need or what do you want? People can't answer that quite. We're not self-aware enough, um, none of us, about our, especially those kind of daily, um, mundane, familiar uh, activities and products that we use. And so you do things like take them through, you know, like a walkthrough of their day, or maybe you actually do what's called an ethnography where you walk through their day with them and you watch them drink coffee and you see them put the milk in there and then you ask them why they did it. Those kinds of things are different tools that you can use to get at really understanding what's going on and and what people's attitudes and behaviors are versus just asking them. No, it's, it's, yeah, no, it was interesting. So like I said, I'll, I'll throw a link to that in there, but uh, you know, I like your I like your take on it. I, I've not heard that term, but that definitely seems like a much more intuitive uh, way to do it because you know, for the very reasons you just stated, people really don't know what they want. They think they do. Um, and again, that's that's another crossover with with leadership because you know when you do that same thing with leadership, people talk about wanting a uh, you know a, a boss that makes decisions and looks out for the uh, for the good of the company so people have a job but what people really want is a an empathetic leader that's going to listen and take their feelings into account if you will and sure you may still have to make a decision for the betterment of the organization but at least people know that that decision was made with their well-being in mind and uh yeah it's it's this, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you being on here and, and kind of opening my eyes a little bit to how leadership and, and uh, other realms kind of creep into one another. Absolutely. It's um, so great to have this chat with you. I think the work that you're doing is really fascinating. Yeah, well, no, I appreciate that. And, and uh, I, I think, you know, I've taken a kind of a peruse of, of your Instagram accounts and things like that. And I highly, uh, highly recommend that. I'll get the links to your website and uh, social media stuff up as part of the show notes. Uh, so hopefully you'll see an influx there. Uh, but if if somebody listening wants to reach out to you and work for you with brand development or 
any other uh, any other service, what is the best way for them to uh, to get in touch with you? Sure. The easy place to go is electrifyyourwork.com. And then that has links to all the good stuff. Outstanding. Well, we're sitting about 45 minutes or so right now. Uh, Is there anything that we didn't get a chance to touch on that you would, uh, you'd like to hit before we close out? No, I mean, I think this has been a really um, wide ranging and and fascinating conversation. And um, yeah, there's so much going on in the world. Uh, We could probably talk for another few hours and not (laughs) run out of topics, but um, I think we had a lot of good stuff today. Well, good. No, I appreciate that. And and again, I thank you for for being here. And, uh, you know, I know typically in New York, it's taken a lot of time out of your busy schedule, as you kind of alluded to being locked down for a little bit now. Uh, I'm sure you're still busy, but it's not the normal hectic pace, right? It's a different kind of busy. Yeah, it's really interesting how our lives have been sort of reinvented. Well, listeners, again, thank you. This has been uh, Susan Hamilton Meyer. Uh, if you liked what she has to say, I'll, I'll have uh, all of the contact info that she just mentioned, including her social media accounts, uh, in the show notes. I highly recommend reaching out to her following uh, what she puts out. Uh, some very beautiful and, and entertaining stuff. Um, again, Susan, thank you for, for spending the last 45 minutes or so with uh, me and my audience. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me, Earl. Absolutely. And uh, listeners, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, burden.command at gmail.com. I appreciate you sticking with us. Uh, Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Share with your friends. Help us get these great messages out. I really appreciate you and your time, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electric Acid. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the Interviews. Electric acid. Electric acid.